So as I said, I will not be reading through our passage again, but I'll be referencing specific portions of it as we work through. If you'd like to follow along, I'll invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 18. And before we go any further, let me pray for God's help. Living God, help us so to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do, through Christ our Lord. Amen. I recently read a novel that covers one day in the life of a prisoner in a Soviet gulag. It was fascinating how much about a person can be highlighted by narrating a single day. A literary critic wrote about this novel. Using one day as a frame for a novel is dynamic because it expands the grid of inspection so much that an entire universe of detail can be poured in. If you're going to spend all day with one person, you're going to learn a lot. This information will grow past the boundaries of what, where, and when into the very marrow of the character's consciousness and society. By spending one day with a prisoner, I got to know what it means to be a prisoner through the everyday life of those characters. Genesis 18 is a day-in-the-life story, but not of a prisoner. What then is the mold that we should see for Abraham? James writes this, referencing the words of Jehoshaphat and of Isaiah in the Old Testament. He said, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Abraham, just one chapter before, had received yet another covenant revelation from God, reaffirming his friendship with the Lord. But this is not only true of our father in the faith. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 15, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. We, like Abraham, through the covenant mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ, can be friends of God doesn't matter how many friends we might have. If the Lord is not counted among them, it's all for naught. But he with open arms welcomes sinful men and women and children into his friendship. Because his ultimate purpose continues to be to dwell with his people. So here in Genesis 18, we get a glimpse of a day in the life of Abraham. God's friend par excellence. And from this, we can glean much about how we can and should live as friends of God. The narrative falls into three stages. We'll use those divisions as our outline, which you can find in the normal place at the backs of the bulletin. As we work through this chapter, we'll see that friends of the Lord dine with the Lord, are disciplined by the Lord, and dialogue with the Lord. Kids, you also find in the normal place the words for you to listen for. So let's start by seeing how the scene is set for Abraham to dine with the Lord. The first thing I want us to see is actually an application 
we see that friends who dine with the Lord show hospitality. But hospitality is no accident. It's something we must intentionally prepare for. Abraham was ready for hospitality. First, he was ready mentally. Our passage begins with him sitting in the shade where he had set up camp. And in the heat of the day, he's taking his siesta. When out of nowhere, three weary travelers appear. They stood in front of him, which would be the cultural equivalent of knocking on someone's door. May I come in? And the language here has a sense of suddenness. It's as if 99-year-old Abraham had nodded off in his easy chair in the lazy, oppressive heat, and he came to to see three strangers standing there. He hadn't seen them coming. He wasn't expecting company. But he sprang into action, even giving up his sense of dignity as he runs to welcome, to welcome them in. He didn't see this interruption as a nuisance, but as an opportunity. He says, in essence, where are my manners? And, and greets the men heartily, even showing honor by bowing down before them. And in good southern fashion, offering refreshment and rest, underselling what he plans to give them. Now, this was more than just a normal greeting. Especially for a man of wealth and stature like Abraham, this reverential act of running out and bowing down before them demonstrates he recognized something in the three guests worthy of extraordinary honor. John Calvin writes in his commentary, Undoubtedly, the angels bore in their countenance and manners marks of extraordinary dignity, so that Abraham would conclude them to be worthy not only of meat and drink, but also of honor. But I think the ESV translation misses it a bit in verse 3. It translates Abraham's words as a conscious address to the Lord, instead of a more general, respectful address to honor another person. It could be translated either way. But I think there's more to what Abraham says than he knows when he addresses one on behalf of the three. At this point, I don't think he's realized what a special visit this is. He simply sees it as a great honor that these travelers have happened upon his camp, and he hurries them in, underselling his plan to lay out an extravagant meal for them. But he's not only prepared mentally, he's prepared materially to host the men. Hospitality is not a one-man operation. So, hopefully you heard the language as I read it. He scurries about, overseeing his household, working as a seamless team to show a tangible act of love to these visitors. He has the flour set aside already, and he tasks Sarah with making the bread. He runs out to the herd and picks out the main course to have his butcher prepare it. And he brings the bread and the meat and the milk and the yogurt, and he waits the table himself. Abraham's home is a well-oiled operation ready to spring into action at a moment's notice. This is a habit that they've formed and they've planned ahead for. This friend of God is ready for hospitality. There are a couple of other things to see here in Abraham's hospitality. First, he's indiscriminate. This passage isn't about him 
seeking out the influential and the rich that live around him and invite them over. He isn't looking for quid pro quos. He simply has people show up and he welcomes them in. Abraham had no idea who these men were, as dignified as they might have appeared. He has no reason to expect that he'll see them again or to receive anything in return from them. But he welcomed and served them all the same. Those who dine with the Lord should show the same indiscriminate hospitality. Abraham sees this as a divine appointment by God. Calvin describes it this way. He says, Moreover, it is certain that Abraham spoke thus in sincerity of mind. Let us, after his example, conclude that whenever our brethren who need our help meet us, they are sent to us by God. Next, notice the generosity of his hospitality. He doesn't warm up leftovers. But he takes enough fine flour to make 30 loaves of bread. He doesn't merely slaughter a lamb, which would be the normal food offered to a most important guest. But he handpicks the most tender calf, and he puts the whole animal in front of the men. And then he bids them to eat. As he stands by, ready to refill the cups and the bowls himself the minute one of them runs dry. Abraham's not a begrudging host who holds back the good stuff for himself after the guests are gone. But he joyfully and freely offers the best of what he has to his visitors. And kids, this is a simple thing that you can learn from. When you have friends come to your house, do you offer them the first snack? Or your favorite toy? Or do you hold those back for yourself? Give them the second best. Even you can honor God and those he sends to you by being generous, gracious hosts, just like Abraham. Which brings us to the basis of the hospitality. Abraham just didn't turn into a hospitable man. There was a reason for it. He readily shared what he had, Because he recognized the source of his wealth. I mean, this picture right here is him embodying the reality that the Apostle Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 4. What did Abraham have that he did not receive from the Lord? And why had he been blessed, as we've heard over and over again, but for the reason to be a blessing to others? Brothers and sisters, we who were strangers... And even enemies of God have been welcomed in. We have been shown the finest hospitality. The Lord Jesus has called us his friends. And he regularly invites us to feast with him at his table. We who have received such a warm welcome should in turn extend that welcome to others. Oh, that God would continue as he already has, to form Christ's church into a loving family, eager to welcome anyone who crosses our path. So brothers and sisters, we, we like Abraham, should be ready for hospitality. And I must confess, in thinking through this topic, I have been convicted. My wife is fantastic at hosting people and making them feel welcome. And I, frankly, am not. 
I love my space and my schedule. And I've been cut to the quick remembering two different things that I've heard Pastor Chris say at different times. First, in the past, he's pointed out that in our culture, we wear busyness as a badge of honor. Many of us pack our schedules to the brim with work and school and kids' activities and recreation. And we reach the end of every day and every week exhausted. And the thought of adding one unexpected thing to our day might be unthinkable. That's where the second thing that I've heard Chris say has hit me hard. He said, ministry is done in the interruptions. The divine appointments that the Lord has in store that we may not have written down in our day planners are where the most meaningful acts of service often take place. And if we do not intentionally build our lives so that we can absorb those, we'll miss out not only on the opportunity to be a blessing, but from the very blessing we get when we are operating in that ministry of interruption. We rob ourselves if we're not able to do that. And this requires us, especially in Bentonville, Arkansas, let's be honest, to be countercultural. If we accept the culture around us, this, their standards for what fulfilling our vocations of employees and parents and, dare I say, church members, if we take their view of what those things look like, we're going to leave out the necessary space to welcome others. But hospitality is not an optional Christian virtue. It's actually a required qualification for those who would serve as elders in Christ's church. The church in Acts met in each other's homes daily for fellowship. And John wrote in his third epistle commending Gaius for welcoming brothers and sending them on their way. The writer of Hebrews included hospitality in the list of exhortations at the end of his letter. And yes, the ancient Near East culture was built on hospitality and charity in a way that ours is not. And most of us don't have livestock sitting around waiting for hungry strangers to show up for a cookout. But this is not a new problem. In fact, John Calvin decried it in his day. In his commentary on this passage, he wrote, The great numbers of inns, I-N-N-S, are evidence of our depravity and prove it to have arisen from our fault that the principal duty of humanity has become obsolete among us. He was fighting a lack of hospitality in the days of the Reformation. The church is a family. So we ought to be having family dinners with one another. and We should eagerly invite others in to join us. Neighbor love begins with a simple posture of welcome and willingness to share. With your home and your budget and your schedule, it might take creativity. It's going to look different from how others will do it. But we should plan ahead so that we're ready to show hospitality. But that's not the most marvelous thing about this passage, the hospitality that Abraham shows. The wonders of this passage are just getting started. This friend of God, he shows marvelous hospitality but he had no idea that he and Sarah were receiving far more than they were offering these three men. 
If Abraham had a suspicion about the nature of this visit, it was surely confirmed in what the men said once the meal was over. They finished eating and they asked about Sarah. These men have supernatural knowledge. They maybe could have guessed that Abraham was married. Perhaps Sarah herself had brought the bread out and given it to him to be served. But they weren't introduced. And yet these men knew her name. And not the name that she had gone by for the first nine decades of her life. No, remember just last week we heard her name had been changed to Sarah the new name given to her by the Lord. And then Moses is very clear that the Lord himself is at this table. And he reveals his identity by speaking for Sarah's benefit, the promise that Abraham had heard in chapter 17. This is a Christophany. This is a physical appearance of the second person of the Trinity prior to his taking on flesh by the conception of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Abraham, the friend of God, had received the highest of honors. God himself was sitting at the table. Have you ever been to those restaurants where in the entryway they have pictures of the owner with all the famous people that have come in and had a meal there? Well, if Abraham had a Polaroid, the picture of him and the three men would have gone up in the tent. This is a big deal. And kind of as an aside, this seems to be what the author of Hebrews had in mind when he spoke of the fathers entertaining angels unaware. And even more than that, Abraham here is living proof of what Christ would later tell his disciples that on the last day, those who had done good to the least of his brothers would be seen as doing that good directly to Jesus. Which is another impetus for hospitality. In the words of Matthew Henry, we should not be forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares, nay, the Lord of angels himself, as we always do, when for his sake we entertain the least of his brethren. Cheerful and obliging manners in showing kindness are great ornaments to piety. God sat down at Abraham's table, but brothers and sisters, a greater honor has been given to us. The Word of God, who was with God in the beginning and is God, did not merely temporarily appear, but He took on flesh and He dwelt in the midst of sinful Wretched humanity. And more than merely waiting the table with the Lord as our guest, we have been given a seat alongside the other friends of God where the Lord Jesus himself has put on the clothes of a servant and made us his guests. And one day, at the consummation of all things, we will sit down at his marriage supper and dine with him. We get a foretaste of that here at this table tonight. Friends of God, dine with the Lord. And as we see in the next short scene, the friends of God are disciplined by the Lord. You see, this visit was not primarily for Abraham's benefits, but for Sarah's. You see, either Abraham had not shared the promise with her from chapter 17, 
which I find kind of hard to believe. Or she had not believed him. So the Lord came down so that she could hear it straight from his lips. So here we see, first, God's pronouncement is delivered. What had begun 24 years prior, with the general promises that had drawn Abraham out of Haran into the land of Canaan, those promises that she had been waiting for, sometimes more patiently than others, they finally get a specific date. This time next year, Sarah will bear the son of promise. And the Lord spoke to Abraham knowing that Sarah would overhear. This is how it is with all of God's friends. He initiates the friendship. He communicates to us by means of his word. It's by hearing that faith comes. And through faith, we are united to Christ and brought into friendship with God. But notice, Sarah's response is not to receive the promise with faith and joy. God's promises were disbelieved. And from a purely worldly perspective, we could hardly blame her chortling bitterness. Not only had she been waiting two and a half decades, not only were she and Abraham far past their prime childbearing years with nothing to show for it, but her own body ceased the natural processes necessary for a child to be conceived. She had not learned to look past what was naturally possible so that when this word came that seemed too good to be true, it seemed too difficult to be accomplished, she waves it away from her mind. She can't bear another disappointment. And this is the same way that you and I often treat God's word. When we think that our sin is somehow too much for God to forgive, or our circumstances are too much for God to overcome, or we think we must add our works to our faith so that God will see us as truly worthy of his love, or when we turn away from his righteous law that he has revealed to pursue our sin, we, like Sarah, are disbelieving God's word his promises, and his warnings. And like her, we're trusting our own wisdom. And notice how this is no different from the garden. All sin is at root the same. Setting ourselves up to judge whether God is being truthful and acting according to our judgment rather than God's. So while struggling to understand God's purposes and his word, And fighting and wrestling with doubt does not necessarily mean we are sinning. Unbelief is sin. Sarah's responding laughter here was obviously different from Abraham's in Genesis 17. We see that based on the Lord's response and then on her own lie to cover it up. John Calvin again, he explains, Abraham had laughed before, but the laughter of both was by no means similar. For Sarah is not transported with admiration and joy on receiving the promise of God, but foolishly sets her own age and that of her husband in opposition to the word of God, that she may withhold confidence from God when he speaks. He goes on to say, Thus, as often as we measure the promises and the works of God by our own reason, 
and by the laws of nature, we act reproachfully towards him, though we may intend nothing of the sorts, for we do not pay him his due honor, except we regard in every obstacle which presents itself in heaven and on earth as placed under subjection to his word. We attempt to rob God of his power whenever we distrust his word. But the Lord will not let her stay in her unbelief. He responds. In his, in his response, we see his power defended. He asks that most basic of questions. Is anything too difficult for God? Zechariah wonders the same thing as Sarah when he's promised a son in Luke 1. And he receives the same response from the angel of Gabriel. So let me ask you, do you believe anything is too difficult for the Lord? And I assume none of us would dare say, yes, I believe something is too difficult for the Lord. But I wonder how many of you are like me. And if you look at your prayers, you admit that you pray as if there are all kinds of things that are too difficult for the Lord. Let me once again quote that notorious prosperity gospel preacher, John Calvin. He who does not expect more from God than he is able to comprehend in the scanty measure of his own reason does him grievous wrong. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, defeating Satan, sin, and death on our behalf forever. So would that our prayers and our obedience match that we profess we believe that fact. Where the false prosperity gospel gets it wrong is where it promises things that God never promised. And where it tries to actually limit his power to the level of our faith. But notice, if anything, this passage shows that the Lord's not limited by Sarah's lack of faith. He's not going to let her stay there and miss out on his promise. Instead, he reiterates it, and he overcomes her unbelief, partially by rebuking her in order to stir up faith within her. Which leads us to the purpose of discipline. This is mild discipline, but it's discipline nonetheless. As Matthew Henry said, whom the Lord loves, he will rebuke, convict, silence, and bring to repentance. He will not let us stay in our sin. God disciplines his friends because they are his children and he is unwilling to let us wander in our sin and unbelief. Sometimes our thoughts and our actions warrant a verbal correction. Sometimes a chastisement. But God's ultimate purpose is always for his friends, his children to know and love the Lord more. Ultimately, that's the whole purpose of this meal outside Abraham's tent. To confront Sarah's lingering unbelief and call her to rest completely in God's word. Christ Church, do not ignore and do not waste the discipline of the Lord on your life. Whether it comes from the preaching of his word here, whether it comes from private exhortation from the elders of the church or from mature Christian friends who know and love you, or even in the circumstances 
that he uses in his providence to turn you away from the things of the world to cling more tightly to him. For their own good and for their eternal joy, the friends of the Lord are disciplined by the Lord. Finally, this last scene of this chapter shows us that friends of the Lord dialogue with the Lord. Abraham's dialogue with the Lord begins with a revelation of God's purposes. After the meal, Abraham joins the men, and he's a good host. He's walking his guests a little way down the path. And Moses here uses anthropomorphic language to depict for us that the Lord is debating within his mind whether he's going to reveal his plans to Abraham. In this internal discourse, the Lord actually lays out the basis for this revelation. He first reiterates the promise. It is certain that Abraham will become a great nation and that all nations of the earth will find blessing through him and his seed. Thus it is only fitting that Abraham be led in on the fate of the nations surrounding him and especially those on the borders of the land that are promised to his descendants. In the same way, while we're not privy to each step of how history will work out in God's providence, we are heirs of the world, and so God has revealed to us how it will happen that judgment will come and shalom will be restored to his creation one day. And then the second consideration that the Lord has is that he has chosen Abraham as his covenant partner for the special purpose of receiving commands to carry forward and pass along from generation to generation. In the words of one commentator, the destruction of Sodom and the surrounding cities was to be a permanent memorial of the punitive righteousness of God and to keep the fate of the ungodly constantly before the mind of Israel. The same responsibility of Abraham to teach these commands to his children. That's the same responsibility for Christian parents, especially fathers, today. Our larger catechism references verse 19 when it teaches us that the word of God is to be read in families, not just here. And also where it states that superiors in those relations of superiors and inferiors in the fifth commandment language, the superiors keep the fifth commandment in part by endeavoring that commandments are kept by others in their duty of places. If you're a father, part of your job is to see that your children know and keep the commandments of God. So, fathers and mothers, are you reading the scriptures at home? Are you ensuring that your children are taught the commands of our righteous and holy God? We're not only to read the happy and the cute stories from the story Bible, but the whole counsel of God, so that the fullness of His glory and power is displayed and our children learn to walk in His righteous and just ways, knowing God's wrath as well as His mercy. If you do not train your children in the way they should go, don't be surprised if one day they depart from it. So the Lord determines, yes, he will tell Abraham his plans. 
He says first, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. This idea of outcry hints back to chapter 4, where the blood of Abel demanded the action of God. The injustice that is happening in these, uh, against the innocent in these wicked cities is so great that it cannot be ignored. And then the Lord adds that their sin is grave. The same term translated grave, when it's used in a positive sense, means glorious. But here's the exact opposite. The wickedness is so great that it cannot be missed. We'll see in detail next week the nature of this sin. But the rest of the Bible is clear in defining it. Ezekiel says that the people of Sodom had grown proud, oppressed the poor and needy among them, and committed an abomination. The word that is used in Leviticus to categorize sexual perversion. Peter writes that they indulged in lusts of defiling passion and they despised authority. While Jude writes focused on their sexual immorality and unnatural desire. The wickedness is deep-seated and festering and multifaceted. So just as he did at Babel, the Lord is going down to investigate. The Lord is not rash. He's not unjust. He's going to determine the truth before acting. Again, this is anthropomorphic language. It's not as if he's in confusion about what's going on there. But even in this, in this action of going down, you notice he leaves the door open for mercy. He says, his inquiry is meant to discover where they've, whether they've completely filled the place with their sin. And he ends a statement to Abraham with at least the possibility, if not. He's almost baiting Abraham into a conversation on the subject. And it works. Because in response to the revelation of God's purposes, Abraham gives his request and pleas. And notice where he starts in verse 23. He bases his prayer on God's character. He knows what our shorter catechism teaches. That God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his attributes, which includes his justice. Notice Abraham does not question God's law. He does not question the Lord's right to judge sinners. He doesn't even question the reality of Sodom and Gomorrah's wickedness. There's no sense of, it's not that bad. Instead, Abraham latches on to the idea that if there are 50 righteous men, God would be unjust to punish them for the sins of the wicked men. And while he's here explicitly appealing to the justice of God, he's also implicitly counting on the mercy of God. His plea is that the Lord spare the guilty the judgment they deserve for the sake of the righteous among them. Abraham knows that the Lord who is his friend is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, Forgiving of iniquity and transgression and sin. Abraham also knows what Jesus would reveal in the parable of the wheat and the tares. That the wicked and the righteous will grow side by side. 
And the Lord is unwilling to lose a single one of his faithful people. And so judgment of the wicked is often held at bay for the sake of the righteous. Abraham has been made the covenant partner with God, and he acts here in the same way that Moses would later intercede on behalf of Israel. By praying, and specifically by praying with a focus on others. It would have been easy, wouldn't it, for Abraham to respond to the Lord's news by saying, Good! Take them out! Amen! Now the land can start being cleared for me and my descendants. But instead, he blesses the nations by interceding, by praying on their behalf that the Lord would show mercy for the sake of the righteous men perhaps living in Sodom. And Abraham is persistent in his prayer. Did you notice it when I was reading? He kept pushing, he kept pushing, he kept pushing. He resembles characters from Jesus' parables. The widow who wouldn't leave the judge alone. The man with an unexpected visitor in the middle of the night bothering his neighbor. Jesus says that both of those were answered for their persistence and that the Lord is far more eager to answer prayer than sinful men. And so Abraham contended in prayer until he was answered by his friend, the Lord. He begins with a plea for pardon on the basis of 50 righteous men, concluding with a request that the cities be spared for the sake of 10. And in his approach, Abraham was self-consciously bold. He speaks directly to the Lord, reminding God of his holy character and clearly laying out his prayer. And yet, Abraham offers this bold prayer in a reverent manner, even acknowledging what our larger catechism, question 185, deems a sense of his own unworthiness. Abraham doesn't yell at God. He doesn't vent his anger. He doesn't demand an answer as if they were equals. Instead, he reverently confesses that he is dust and ashes. He pleads the Lord's forbearance, and he makes his his petition. And this effective prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The Lord accedes to his friend's request. The presence of ten righteous men would suffice to stay the hand of judgment. It remains for next week to be seen whether Abraham has been too optimistic about the state of the inhabitants of the cities of the plain. So it's worth asking, dear friends of God, my Christian brothers and sisters, does your dialogue with the Lord resemble Abraham's? Do you listen to him in your word? Do you know his character? Do you pray based on who you know God to be or who you wish he were? Are your prayers focused on others? If the Lord answered your prayers exactly as you asked them, would anyone else's lives be different? Would there be more people in heaven? Are you bold in prayer? Or do you hold back in fear and lack of faith in what the Lord may do? 
Do you ask him to do things that only he can do? And do you approach the God of the universe with reverence or with a swagger? If you belong to Christ, you have the right to an audience with his Father day and night. So may we all learn to pray like Abraham. And as friends of the Lord, delight in having dialogue with the Lord. So as we close the book, on this day in the life of the friend of God, we must recognize that all that is true of Abraham here may be true of us, but only because of the promised offspring of Abraham. We must depend on the Lord. You see, it's not Abraham's behavior that makes him a friend of God. Instead, because he has received grace, he responds in love for God and for his neighbor. And grace is only ever available through Jesus, the greater descendant of Abraham and Sarah. Here, Abraham receives a visit of the Lord, where the Lord dines on Abraham's food at Abraham's table. But we have been granted a fuller blessing. We have been invited to his table where momentarily the Lord Jesus himself will offer to feed us with his own body and blood. And he promises us the future of a wedding supper to surpass all feasts in the new heavens and the new earth. Through the work of the Lord Jesus, we may dine with the Lord. Sarah received the rebuke of her lack of faith so that she may grow and lay hold of the promises held out to her. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus never lacked for faith or righteousness. And yet he bore the judgment due to all our sins so that when we believe in him, we don't bear a hint of it ourselves. We don't receive judgment from the Lord. Instead, we receive corrective discipline to make us more like Christ. Through the discipline of the Lord, we grow into greater friendship with the Lord. And finally, like his ancestor Abraham, the Lord Jesus intercedes on behalf of sinful man. Abraham pleaded with God to spare the cities for the sake of ten righteous men, but he didn't dare negotiate down to one, nor to offer his own righteousness in the place of these wicked cities. And we, in our sin, stand condemned before God as guilty as Sodom and Gomorrah. Yet the great descendant of Abraham, the Lord Jesus, he didn't seek ten men to save a small number. No, he did what Abraham dared not and could not do. He offered himself because the righteousness of Jesus Christ is sufficient to deliver people from every tribe, tongue, and nation from the weight of their sin to make even the greatest enemy friend of God. Jesus went further than seeking clemency. He stepped in and he took the punishment in the place of sinners so that by believing in him they could receive righteousness and eternal life. Jesus said no man can have any greater love 
than to lay down his life for his friends. And he did it. He now stands before the Father, interceding for his own. He gave the promise that anything asked in his name will be granted to his people. Through the Lord Jesus, we may dialogue with the Lord. What greater friendship could there be? Oh, that all of you would be found to be friends of God by placing your trust in Jesus and living in light of that wonderful love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please pray. Oh, Father, make it so. By your Spirit, strengthen the friendship that we have with you. Call enemies to yourself to make them your friends. Discipline us so that we may grow. Do not leave us in our sin and unbelief. Lord, help us to serve others around us and tell them the same news that we have received. In Jesus' name, amen.